to find the cannons. You know, it was like, well, like they went around and said, let's find them. They were already there. They just had to receive them, so to speak. Yes. They were digging around and found them, but the, the part that kind of got me was the fact that God knew what was going to happen. He had it already set up pretty much, and they just found it. It was like they went digging and they got some kind of glory from it. It was just God revealed his scripture through these men. Right, exactly. And so, great point with that, because when we look at this verse, and it says all scripture is inspired, what is that word, where does that word inspired come from? What is the Greek word that it's translated from? Does anybody know what it is? By the way, does anybody have it? Breathed out. It's breathed out, literally. Does anybody have an ESV? Anybody use an ESV? Do me a favor. Open up your ESV to 2 Timothy 3.16, and let's read it and compare it. Because this is, uh, this is NASB 95. So in uh, so 2 Timothy 3.16, that translation in the ESV is actually a more literate translation, a more word-for-word -word translation than, than what it is in, in both the uh, NASB and the King James Version. Now, in the King James Version, it says, uh, it'll say, for doctrine, right, rather than teaching. But here's the question for you. What are you teaching? If the word is teaching here, what are you teaching? Well, you're teaching doctrine. So they're almost interchangeable, which is why in the New King James, or the King James, it'll say doctrine, because it's profitable for doctrine. In the NASB, it says profitable for teaching. So, but you're teaching the doctrine. So that's why they're kind of interchangeable here. But do, do you have that? Uh, Caleb, what does that say? It says, uh, under here, it says, all scripture would refer to the, to the OT, but by implication also to at least some NT writing, which by this time were already being considered as scripture. Uh, yeah, I will get to that. But do you have the, what does the actual verse say? That's the commentary. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Mm -hmm. So is that right? Am I wrong? So 2 Timothy 3, 16, because you were just reading the commentary on there when yeah, you talked about scripture. Look over here. I'll go back. 3, 16. That is so tiny. <laughs> I know. Here we go. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All right, did you hear he said all scripture is breathed out? And so that, that translation, you know, here it's inspired me. It is, it is coming from God, but you, you lose a little bit in that word if you don't know its, its root. And so the root, uh, it's actually translated from the Greek word theopneustos. And what is, you think about theo meaning God and pneustos. What is that when you think about that word pneustos? Have you ever heard of pneumatic? Pneumatic meaning air. So literally that's what it means. God, air, or God breathed out. So all scripture, is that, when we say all scripture, what does that include? Includes everything, right? And of course, at this time, uh, when they're in the uh, still in the New Testament and things are being written, um, for the most part, they're saying all Scripture. They're referring definitely to everything from the Old Testament, 
but also they are referring to things that they are currently uh, be, that are being written. And I'll, I'll, we'll we'll get some verses there um, that uh, that will prove that. Okay. So, any questions on this verse? So, it's for teaching or for doctrine. It's breathed out by God. It's for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So what is reproof? Reproof. What is that? It's like rebuke. If somebody's got it wrong, then you use scripture to rebuke. And then correction is to set people on the right course. And then training in righteousness literally is to keep them on the right course. If you're, if you're trained in righteousness, you're on the right course. If you make a mistake and get off the course, that's where reproof comes in. It's like, stop. That's a reproof. Stop. And then... Correction is this is what scripture says to get back on the course, right? So. All right. So what then is meant by inspiration? Let's look at a definition of that. So inspiration is God overseeing and directing men to write his words. It is the process by which God, as the instigator, worked through human prophets while using their individual personalities and styles to produce divinely authoritative writing. So this is a little bit like what you just were reading, Caleb, in that commentary, is that um, it's God using the individual people, and almost uh, it's, it's like when we talk about the canon, is that God's giving it, it isn't something that was made up by man, right? And so God then is responsible for what we have, not man. One of the criticisms of the liberals is, well, they all wrote with their own peculiar type of language. Well, God ordained that because... Keone, you're going to grab a thing on the back. He was sovereign over them as children, what they learned and what their parents taught them and their grandparents taught them. That's right. So they used the words that he was going to... They learned the words that he was going to use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very good. So uh, let's look at some... Refine the definitions. Then Revelation, remember we said... It's the act by which God makes known what is otherwise unknowable, right? And we call that special revelation, right? So when we look at the Bible, the Bible is God's revealed word. It's God who he revealed himself to us specifically about who he is through the word. And then we have general revelation, right? General re revelation is what you see all around you. When you look at a building and you say, well, was there a builder? Of course there's a builder, because there's a building. When you look at creation, you say, was there a creator? Of course there's a creator, because there is a creation. And so we can look all around us and know through general revelation that there is a God. Right? And then we talk about inspiration. And we said inspiration was the vehicle by which God's special revelation came to man. Right? And this is God through inspiration, or God breathing his word, used man to write it down. And then we have illumination, right? And illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit when he makes the inspired, God-breathed words of the Bible come alive for us, right? This is, the Holy Spirit will work through the individual, and the individual then will understand what God's word says, right? And what about people who are unsaved? Can they... Can they, un can they understand God's word? They can understand the English. They can understand the way it's written. But does it have an effect on their heart? I wouldn't think so. No, right? And if 
It's the Holy Spirit, right? In 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 uh, in First uh, Corinthians two fourteen, right? It says that the natural man, and who is the natural man? Natural meaning a man in his flesh, unsaved, right? A natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. So, we talk about God's word. That is not natural word. It is the word of God, and the man man cannot understand it because they are spiritually discerned. So when we talk about, you know, salvation, how is a person saved? Are they saved just by hearing and believing and being tra- on, on their own? This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. They cannot understand it, right, without the Holy Spirit, and that's where illumination comes in. It's like the Holy Spirit is in the heart, the heart's regenerated, and then the person can understand God's word and they're saved. And without the Holy Spirit in the heart, it doesn't happen. What do you say to somebody like that? I had two people, two uh, women say to me that they've read the Bible. And one of them said, uh, I've read the Bible. As if, what's the big deal? You know, the tone of her voice. Yeah, we what do so. you say to somebody like that? Well, I mean, you, you can start really drilling down. Like, you've read the Bible, okay. What did it say? What did it mean to you? What did you, what did you get out of it? All right, they're going to say, well, you know, it was a bunch of fables, a bunch of stories. It was a, it was a big whale or a big fish that ate Jonah. I mean, what, right? This is what they're going to say. Because why? Because it's spiritually discerned. It means then that the Holy Spirit's not in it. So, what does First uh, 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 Romans uh, one sixteen say? Romans one sixteen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul. For his power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Okay, so first is this, is that can a person sitting on a mountain who has never heard the gospel just be spontaneously regenerated? You will have people tell you that. But I will tell you, according to the Bible, that's not, that's not possible because it is the gospel that is required for salvation. They must know the truth before they can believe the truth. And to be saved, you have to understand what the gospel is. A person sitting on the mountain just one day says, I'm saved, I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, they don't know the Jesus Christ that they say they believe in. They have to know the person they believe in before they can truly believe in them, right? And so that's the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel first, and then the Holy Spirit works on the heart, and then a person's saved. Now, does a person have to be told the gospel, or can they hear the gospel from the radio? Can they read the Bible themselves and, and, and get the gospel from reading? Yeah, they can. Only if the Holy Spirit does. But they still won't be saved unless it's the Holy Spirit working within them. Right? So, That's how I was saved. I heard it. You heard it. Everybody's heard it, right? You just don't wake up one day. You can't just wake up one day and say, I'm saved. I had a dream last night. People think I, I saw a beautiful sunset and it made me cry, so therefore I can't say. <laughs> right? Oh, this is a great, 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 great point, too. You know, sometimes salvation will be emotional. You know, sometimes it will come with you know, this emotional experience and feeling. A lot of times it is. Why? It's because a person understands their sin nature. They understand that they are condemned to hell uh, for eternity. And it's God who saved them. That's, that's quite emotional. But sometimes people don't, you know, they're not going to have that emotional feeling. They're going to think at it from a very logical standpoint and just say, you know, praise God that he saved me. 
and they fully understand the gospel and they understand where they were going, but they don't have that, that big emotional upwelling. Other people will. But for sure, you know, is it going to be, I saw a beautiful sunset and I was just brought to tears and that was my salvation day? You can enjoy God's creation. You can, it can bring you to tears because you recognize it's, it's the God who did it, the God of the universe, and he's provided this wonderful you know, sunset or sunrise, but it isn't, it isn't that emotional feeling that leads to salvation. So, yeah. Okay. So, question now. Uh, when we look at the word inspiration, uh, is there any possibility... Or is there a possibility that any mistake was made in the inspiration of the Bible? Is there, is there a possibility? Yeah, and this is the key right there. So uh, when we talk about uh, what is the theological term that speaks of the faultlessness of the Bible? What do we call it? Inerrancy, Inerrancy of Scripture. We say that Scripture is inerrant. And so we have to understand what we're saying uh, when we say that the scriptures are inherent. Does that mean that the Bible that you have in your hand, that it is inerrant? Close. It's close. It's close, right? Depends on translation. And, and that's the point you have to understand here is that the Bible you have in your hand is not inerrant, meaning it is not the exact um, represent... Now, I don't want to say it. It's not the exact uh, translation of what was given or how the Bible was initially given, right? Because it's given in three languages. And so you have to take it and it has to be then translated into a language so you can read it. And we have people all over the world doing that for languages that in some places they don't even have a written language. But the, the point is, is that what you have is a translation. And are translations perfect? No. They're not, right? Wait, what happened here? Yeah, so... Um, some of the translations that we that uh, were developed were not based on the original language at all, but they were translated using a modern language. And so, and as an example, you have a, a, a translation called the Vulgate, right? The Vulgate, Jerome, it's called Jerome's Vulgate. It is the Latin translation from the Greek that they had at the time. And then later, I think it was Wycliffe, took uh, the Latin and then translated that with additional, uh, additional uh, manuscripts and came up with the Wycliffe Bible. Okay, so he, in some cases, is, are, is using a translation from Greek to Roman, from Roman to then the English that he had. So you're losing, every, you know, you've heard that, that statement before, it loses something in the translation, where that's the possibility. And so that's why we always go back to the original manuscript. Well, not the original, but the copies of the original manuscripts to get as close as possible to the original uh, language that you can. So let me give you an example. What the, the problem with translating from a language other than the original. In, uh, in China, when Coca-Cola was first, uh, first introduced, they called it Ki, uh, Kikukila. Kikukila. Unfortunately, the Coke company didn't discover until after thousands of signs and billboards had been printed that the phrase meant bite the wax tadpole. <laughs> or, or another dialect, female horse stuffed with wax. Bad translation, right? It's like, you know, they didn't recognize. And I'll give you another modern day example for us. Uh, there was a, a uh, pharmacy called uh, in, in 
uh, uh, LA, what was it called? Uh, it used to be, we used to go get the ice cream, you know, for five cents each. Uh, yeah. Thrifty, right? Thrifty. Thrifty, okay, so Thrifty, Thrifty Pharmacy. So they were bought out and they changed the name to um, Osco's, mm -hmm. Osco's, okay? Well, I don't know why they changed it to Osco. I don't know what an Osco is. I mean, how they came up with that word, who knows, but it wasn't until probably nine months to a year later that they found out that in Spanish, that word meant like bad smell. <laughs> and, and a huge, a huge uh, uh, you know, base of their uh, customer, their customer base were Hispanic people. And anyway, so again, that was another disaster. And after they changed all their signs, billboards, and made these, you know, acrylic signs with lights and all this, you know, Osco's open till nine or whatever, they had to go and change them all. So, what are they called now? Rite Aid? Rite Aid, yeah. Rite Aid. <laughs> so anyway, that's why and we want to point to that is that translations are important. So uh, let's look at a couple of uh, verses here. Now. John 21, uh, 15 through 8. You know, uh, this is Jesus speaking, and he says to Peter, do you love me? Okay, do you love me? Now, what's wrong with the English when it says, do you love me? Different words for, for love. It, yeah, love, right? You can, you can look in Webster's and get about 13 different uh, definitions for love. But here in, in, in the Bible, it says, do you, the Greek word is agape me. Agape is a sacrificial love. Agape, it says... The father loves the son. The father agape the son, loves the son. And then Peter says back, I phileo you. And so what does that word mean? More like like. Like yeah. or brotherly love kind of a, yeah. of a love, right? You, you've heard of this, the city of Philadelphia, right? It's that same, same thing. So then Jesus says again, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. And then... Finally, Jesus says, do you phileo me? He says, I phileo you. So in our translation, our Bible says, do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. I was like, why do you have to repeat it three times? He said it once, right? He's a kind of confession the last time. He's like, yeah, or you know that I only. Yeah, he says, you know that, right? You know that I love you. But the point is, is that we lose a little bit in the translation because we don't have this word agape, okay? We have love. And so brotherly love and sacrificial love, the love between, a, a, say, a husband and a wife, which is not the same as brotherly love, but yet in the English, you can't make that distinguish. You can't distinguish between the two. And so that's why it's important that we also have the ability to go back to the Greek text and look up a word if we want to. And so that way we'll, we'll always know that. So, but that to say, if, you, if you're using a Bible, which Bible um, is, is the best Bible? So English attempts to get across what was happening here, there's deficiencies because we don't have the same exact translation for love that, that's indicated by the Greek. Um, so when, when you choose a Bible to study, it's good to choose one that is as literal as possible. That literal meaning word-for-word -word translation. There's like some the message? Like, <laughs> message, but here we go. Speaking of the message. Oh. So literal translations, the New American Standard... You know, 95 or the, even the later one, the English Standard Version, Holman Christian, the New King James, International Version, those are all pretty close to a literal word for word translation. Whereas these over here, these are paraphrases or thought by thought kind of translations. So, yeah, the Message and the New Living Translation, God, all those. 
So, you know, not to say if you want to read a Bible and you just want to read for reading's sake, you can read it. You'll get the, the gist of a story, but you're going to lose you're going to lose the specifics. It shouldn't be used for study or analysis or expository preaching. No, no, nah. yeah. it should not be used for that. But if you just want to get the sense of a passage or something, you can always read it. So. I have a question. Yes. Not on the American Standard, the 1999 version. I've been told not to read the letter. What do you want the difference is? I just been told to stay with 1995 or earlier. Yes, they, new... add, they add she instead of he. Oh, is that what they Yeah, yeah they, they, they add the pronoun. Oh, okay. it's not so there's, what do they call the new one? That's, uh, I just saw it in. Is it 2022? 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, yeah, it has a name. Yeah, yeah. 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 They it's the American Standard version. What do they call it? Integ. Yeah, something like that. Have they got a different name on the end of it, too? Yeah. To, to clarify what it is. Uh, yeah. So I, again, you got to be careful. You know, is it there's um, there's good translations, there are bad translations, and so you want to you want to go with a known um, Bible that's you know got, been gone over and uh, agreed to by you know your prominent biblical scholars and those Bibles who that that really twist the word or just bad translations, you just want to stay away from them. Yeah, and you'll notice that the old King James is, well, it is on there, yeah. The, 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 yeah, just the new King James is. But, but it's old English, and a lot of people don't understand it. <laughs> yes, right? If you go back to the old King James, yeah, the ye, ye, thee, thou, those, oh, yeah. and all those kinds of things. So, yeah. so I just throw out a, this is a freebie, informationally speaking, <laughs> Uh, you know, languages change, right? They change over time, and you see that happening a lot nowadays. But for this country, language was very stable all the way up until the mm, 60s. And the reason was is because the New King James was a, uh, uh, a book that was used in reading and teaching how to read and English in the U.S. school system. And it didn't change. So that's why the English language has been stable for so long in this country. But now, with the, with the Bible being removed since the 60s, um, I can't even understand some kids today. I have no idea what the words they're saying on me when they change them. So. The secular English literature professors hate the fact that their kids are not raised with the Bible anymore because they can't understand Shakespeare. That's right. Yeah. right? You know, it's, it's a travesty. If you don't know King yeah. James English. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, how do we know that the Bible is insp is the inspired Word of God? Well, Scripture claims to be the Word of God. Right. So you'll have people who will say, "Well, you know, Bible claims it's true, but who says it's true?" Well, now what are they saying? They're calling into question God, right? Because God in the Bible has said uh, many, many times. That, or the Bible says this is the word of God, right? And then we also have the sovereignty of God in preserving his word, right? So who, who made everything? God did. Who's in control of everything? God is. Who made sure we had his word? God did, right? So God is sovereign in making sure that everything that's in the Bible was there by his design. All right, so then. Our verse, 
Number one says it. All scripture is inspired by God. Right? So that's our memory verse. And as, as part of the proof text, all scripture means all scripture is inspired by God. And so what we have in our Bible is scripture. Secondly, we have is 2 Peter 1, 20, 21. Uh, Andrea, can you read that? 2 Peter only, or do you want to Just this one, yeah, I already read that one. That one. We'll go there. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever made an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There you go. So here's another proof text, right? Men moved by the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? God. The Holy Spirit is God. Third part of the Trinity, right? So then, and also... No, no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation, meaning we don't determine what it means. It's the Holy Spirit who determines what it means, right? And we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so there, there's two proof texts in the New Testament right there. And is there more? Um, Ray, could you read that one? Isaiah 46, 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And so, the key, the key there is right here. God says that my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So, is there anything excluded that God will not accomplish? No. He will accomplish all. His good pleasure. There's nothing that he can't do. And what he wants to do, he will do. So then, uh, what does that mean then in regard to God's word? Do you think that he has the power to dictate exactly what he wanted to? Yep. Yeah, right? God's purpose and his will is to produce the Bible. He has the power to preserve his word. He is the author of the Bible. And what does the author of a book get to do? Well, the author gets to determine the beginning from the end and everything that he puts in the middle. And that's exactly what God did. So, uh, and we'll talk about uh, the sovereignty of God in a next, uh, third, I think, third, uh, the third lesson. So then, can we be assured of the truth? Yeah, God's, God's word is truly and wholly inspired by God himself, right? And he, by his sovereign control, next, sorry. He, by his sovereign control over the process, placed into our hands what he wanted us to know, right? So then, why these 66 books? What's the obvious answer? Because that's what he wanted us to have, right? Because he was in control of everything, and that was what was he, he determined that we needed. Right? So... Um, and then also, we, uh, uh, we just read this one, right? But um, it's men moved by the Holy Spirit. So we, we know that he's given it to us. Now, the other proof text. Second uh, Samuel 23, 2. The, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, and his word was on my tongue. Okay, so we have... Uh, we've talked about um, in, I think, like the first, the first lesson of this session, we talked about 
general revelation and special revelation. And in special revelation, how did we get God's word? And by what means did he use? Well, one was that he directly influenced, just as just like the Holy Spirit, who is inspiring the men to write, this is the Spirit of the Lord, and he's giving Samuel the words to write. And then we also talked about what other ways were there that God revealed himself to man. There was dreams. There was visions, right? There's theophanies. Yeah. There's, you know, the burning bush, which is, is a, a theophany. There's the pillar of fire uh, that uh, went b uh, before the, the Hebrew nation at night. And there's the, what was in the daytime? The cloud uh, during the daytime that, that uh, they followed. And so God revealed himself in those ways. That's special revelation, and that's how we got it. And, of course, these are other proof texts for that uh, same thing. So, okay, uh, Keone, could you read that? Can you see that? Yep. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Luke 24, 44. So when Jesus says, and this is Jesus speaking to the, to the apostles, but when Jesus says the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what is he referring to? The Old Testament. Right? The Old Testament. That's what they had at that time. And that was just another way to say the Old Testament is saying the law of Moses and the prophets. And so if you talk about, okay, what, well, what are the prophets? We, we covered that last week when we talked about the major prophets and the minor prophets. It's a big section of the Old Testament, right? And then you have the Psalms. He didn't mention Proverbs, but Proverbs is in there as well. So then, um, Jesus testified to the authenticity of the Old Testament, right? So when someone says, well, the Old Testament was written so long ago, how do you know it's true? Because Jesus said it's true. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> And what about Ecclesiastes? Right? Jesus accepted all of it. All of it, right? Okay. Jesus quoted from it. Quoted from it. That's the other thing you'll see is that a lot of quotes in the New Testament. As we said in the beginning is that uh, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed. And in the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. Right? So, okay. Now, uh, let's see. Uh, Michael, can you read that one? But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 14, 26. Okay, again. Who is speaking here? Jesus. Jesus is speaking. And he says he will bring the helper of the Holy Spirit, right? And so remember, how long was Jesus's how long did Jesus' ministry last? Three years, right? So three years he is with the apostles. Every day. What do you think is going on in those three years? He's teaching. He's teaching them everything that he needs them to know so that when he is gone, they will then be able to establish his church, right? And we'll, we'll focus on that in a minute. But the point is, what does he say to them? By the way, can anybody remember everything I said last week? 1%? 2%? 3% word for word, right? Can you remember what, what someone said to you yesterday even? 
right? No, and that's why he said, I'll send you the helper of the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Okay, this is pretty significant ramifications. So what is he saying? What is he saying? What are the apostles going to do after he's gone? Write the New Testament. They're going to write the New Testament, right? And so where are they going to get it from? The Holy Spirit is going to remind them of everything that Jesus told them. And in Acts, there is a, there's a passage where um, the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, are amazed because uh, uh, John and um, Peter are there preaching. And the comment is that they were uneducated in the scriptures, but they said, they recognized they were with Jesus. Why? Why did they say they recognized with Jesus? Because they were preaching from the Old Testament better literally than the scribes and the Pharisees could. Because Jesus had been with them for three years and the Holy Spirit was bringing to their remembrance everything that he had said, everything that he had taught them. And so when they are, of course, in, in the book of Acts, there's no New Testament part written yet. So... This is shortly after Jesus is gone, and they are preaching to the crowd in the temple, and they're preaching Jesus from the Old Testament, right? And so they know the Old Testament because he was there for three years teaching them and pouring into them. Yes, right. Important exception. Remember, Paul didn't sit under this teaching. So when he was saved, he went into the wilderness for three years. Right, mm -hmm. right. And he was caught up into the third heaven. Yeah, he was taught by revelation. So this is yeah. Jesus, specifically Jesus, revealing to Paul what Paul needed to know. So he, he had to unlearn a lot of the stuff he learned as a Jew. Right, because the know. Jews had a m misunderstanding of what the scriptures said. And so Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He brags about it himself. And taught under Gamaliel. Yeah, Gamaliel. so he's, he, you know. I mean, you don't get any, this is like a person, well, I want to say it now, I was going to say going to Harvard, but let's say going to Harvard in the 1800s, right? Going to Harvard in the 1800s or, or Princeton in the 1800s, you're going to get a, a fabulous education, a great institution. And so Paul had been brought up under, uh, under the rabbinical teaching of Gamaliel, Gamaliel, and so, you know, he is, he is an, one of the very few that are taught uh, that well. And so he knew the Jewish traditions and the Jewish understanding of Scripture. But he, but he didn't recognize the Christ that would come. And he should have, knowing his Scriptures as well as he did. He should have also known, according to uh, what Jesus said, the day of your visitation, meaning the day that Jesus the Messiah would come into Jerusalem because it was prophesied in the Old Testament, but they missed it. They missed it. And so, but Jesus then, with his apostles, for three years, poured into them everything they needed to be able to establish the church and give us, literally, the New Testament, because you have, you have books written by Peter, you have books written by James, and of course, lots by Paul, who was, who was separately taught. Um, but all of it then was brought to their attention or revealed to them by the Holy Spirit with the exception of Paul, who is directly taught by Jesus after, after his uh, encounter on the, on the road to uh, Damascus. 
So, in this statement, he also, he authorizes the apostles to be his witnesses. Right? Because the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to them all that they need, which means they are going to be then proclaiming the Christ. Okay. And then one more. Um, well, there's actually two more. Uh, uh, Kathy, can you read that? Can you see that from there? For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Right. So who wrote that? Who wrote this? Which apostle? First Thessalonians that was written by Paul, right? And so Paul is, is himself recognizing that what he's writing is scripture. So he validates everything that he writes as being scripture. And then also, uh, Peter does the same in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And then one more, one more proof text here is uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 13. Um, and it says, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Right, so here's Paul in 1 Corinthians saying the same thing. So you have, clearly in the Old Testament, um, passages that says, this is the Word of God. And you have the... Um, the prophets saying that the word of God came to me and they, and they wrote it down. And then you have these texts in the New Testament, Jesus both validating the Old Testament and the New Testament, what was to come because he promised the Holy Spirit to come and to bring to their remembrance all that he had taught them. And then you have Paul and Peter also validating that what they are writing is scripture. So if someone says, well, where does it say in the New Testament that that's scripture? Right there, right? Because that's that's quite often a criticism, right? But they don't know the they don't know the proof text for that. So, okay. So then, why these sixty six books? Because God willed it so, right? And God's sovereignty guarantees the extent of the canon. So, what is the canon? What does the word canon mean? Standard means rule, means order. So you can say that we have this standard, we have this rule, we have this order of books uh, for the New Testament, right? And then um, it comes from the Greek word, any of you Greek scholars there, I'm not going to pronounce that, meaning true or rule. And then when was the New Testament completed? Well, John wrote Revelation somewhere between 94 and 96 A.D., then Athanasius mentioned the complete canon in 367 A.D. So they already recognized they had all the books of the Bible, right? And then it was formalized at the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. So, and then what did, what did the council at Carthage in 397 A.D. use to authenticate the books of the New Testament? So let's think about that. If you're going to try and authenticate something as being true, what would you use? What standard would you use? I mean, because there's a lot of writings that are floating around, right? And they're false. So how would you, just logically thinking, 
are you going to discern what's true and what's false? With other scriptures. Okay, so they would compare scripture with scripture, yeah. Um, what else? It would, it would have to claim to be the word of God. So we also have this. We have direct apostolic authorship, right? So the foundation of the church is who? It is the apostles, and Christ being the chief cornerstone. We'll get to that. But So that means that direct apostolic authorship, they were with Jesus, and they wrote down what they did. Right? Or secondly, so that was as author, they wrote they wrote down individual books of the Bible, uh, of the New Testament. Or secondly, through scribe, right? So a scribe would be somebody who would write for them. Like, for instance, Paul, Paul had a vision problem, okay? And so he would have somebody dictate, or he would dictate to somebody, and they would write it down. And we know this because on several occasions, you know, he says that he is signing, look how big my words are. And so uh, you would see he's probably got a, uh, a vision problem. I think they would call that near, that nearsightedness. So you can only see something really close. So if it's farther, far, the farther away it gets, the bigger it's got to be so you can, you know, clearly see something. So Paul had to write with big words just so he could see his own name writing. So. Um, and let's look at, uh, let's look at Ephesians uh, 2.20 as direct authorship. All right. So, Keone, can you read that for us? Yep. Direct authorship. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So then, this confirms that the apostles were given by God as the foundation of the church. Right? And every book of the Bible, of the New Testament, can be traced directly to apostles or scribe, except one. Yes. Which one is that? Hebrews. Hebrews, right? Hebrews is a little more difficult, although you know, many people will claim Paul as the author, but... In... How did they get in the canon? It's a great question. The church is put it in. Yeah. Pardon? The church is, in the early centuries, put, put it in. That's a great question because it doesn't have that direct apostolic, but what does it have that the other um, books of the Bible also have? It has consistency with uh, other scriptures. It has, it has um, Old Testament quotations in it, um, and it has uh, specific quotes uh from God, for instance, when it's, of course, they're quoting, quoting Old Testament um, scriptures when they're quoting God, but nonetheless, it's included in there. And so when, when the church is looking at what to include, what not to include, it meets the standard or the rule by which something would be included, right? Even though they cannot identify the author as an apostle per se. Earlier, good question, good question. Earlier lists of the canon by the church in Hebrews was often or always included. One of them as well, yeah. So, and of course it was Athanasian, we said that in, in, in 3, 367, yeah. it already mentioned that the whole, the canon had been already completed. They knew all the books of, of, the, of the Bible. It wasn't until 397 that they just said, okay, well let's just list them all and make sure everybody has the same. You know, that's... But it's still the same process. It had to be 
So the one thing missing was, was uh, the apostolic connection or through scribe. However, through the text, by comparing Scripture to Scripture, you can validate that Hebrews is in, included in that. Anybody ever speculated as to why there was like no signature or greeting like Paul always gave for Hebrews? I mean, it's kind there, of there probably was, but it didn't get in, included. We don't have that original manuscript. Okay, that's so that could have been at the top because it always says Paul. You know, when Paul starts his letters, Paul and an apostle, or Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Timothy. Right as you, right? Where do we put our names when we sign something? Yeah. Always at the bottom, right? So. So for whatever reason, the, maybe maybe the this manuscript that was torn and the top the top one sentence was gone. It told you who did it. So. Well, it also could be possible that if it's going to the Hebrews, they wouldn't have seen who it was from. They found it late. That's possible too, because by then so, Paul was pretty much a an enemy of the the Jews, and it's written to the Hebrews. So I mean, that's a good point right there. So yeah. you don't know for sure. I like what Wayne Grudem said in his Sunday school when asked about, well, why do, does it have an apostolic author? He says, because it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's consistent with Scripture. In fact, it explains the Old Testament immensely. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's great. Okay, so just some important facts. So God revealed his word to us throughout Scriptures. We accept it due to the transformation of our lives by it. The 39 books of the Old Testament were accepted by the early Jewish people and by Christ. It is referred to as the inspired word of God by the New Testament and by Christ. It states that it is God's word over 2,000 times. In the Old Testament, it says in one way or another, the word of God, or this is God's word, or God spoke. Uh, and the fact that it has God's mark of inspiration on it is seen in its prophetic power. So, when we talk about prophecy, um, we'll, we'll kind of look in some of those things in a minute. So, after considering the subject of the canon scriptures, we can make the following conclusions. One, the term canon refers to the authoritative books of scripture. Two, God is the one who decided which books should be placed in the Bible. Three, we know the correct books are in the Bible because of the testimony of Jesus both in authenticating the Old Testament and by his statement to, uh, regarding the New Testament, the Holy Spirit would reveal to the apostles all that he said and bring to their remembrance all that he said. For the apocryphal books considered inspired by the Roman Catholic Church do not give evidence of inspiration. And don't claim to be inspired. Yeah, and they don't make prophecy. Right? Uh, and five recent books that have claimed divine inspiration have uh, proven themselves to be frauds. And six, the scripture is complete. Nothing should be added uh, or subtracted from it. So, is it the Bible? Is it trustworthy? Yes. Is it accurate? Yes. Have his prophecies come to pass? Yes. Out of approximately 2,500 prophecies, 2,000 of them have already come to pass, and the rest deal with the future. We can look at, uh, we have a little bit of time to look at some prophecies about Christ made between uh, 1700 and 400 BC, right? That he would be born of a virgin, that he would be the tribe of Judah, he would be the king of uh, King David's seed, he would be born in Bethlehem, he would be a prophet, 
He would teach with parables. He would be preceded by a messenger. He would enter Jerusalem on a colt. He would be betrayed by, friend, by a friend. He would be betrayed by, for 30 pieces of silver. He would be spit upon and beaten. He would be struck in the head with a rod. He would be mocked. His hands and feet would be pierced. And note, uh, in, in Psalm twenty two sixteen, where it says that uh, he, his hands would be uh, pierced and his feet would be pierced, this was uh, predicted hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. Right? Hundreds of years before it was invented. So, summary then. The Bible is written by common men, yet a masterpiece. It is internally consistent. It has withstood the test of time. It is powerful and dynamic. You have the, the miracle of changed lives and the testimonies. And it's the biblical model best fits the physical evidence. When we say the physical evidence, what do we mean by physical evidence? So the biblical model fits the best, uh, fits the evidence of physical evidence. The physical evidence we're talking about is the world around you, right? So the biblical model, now the, the other model that is out there, which is, is uh, wasn't, um, wasn't actually formulated until the 1850s by a, a geologist named uh, uh, Robert Lyell. And, you know, he was studying and saw all these layers, you know, you can see on the side of a mountain or, or inside of a, of, a, of a canyon wall or something. You got all these little layers on here. And he prophesied, I'm sorry, he, um, uh, what's the word? I just lost it. But anyway, so he speculated that those layers, each layer represented a year of deposition of dust and, and dirt and things like that. And so he would count all these up. He said, look at this. This is millions of years old because there's all these individual layers. Um, carbon dating? Or, you know, well, carbon dating is another, but that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't know about it then in 1850. Uh, but anyway, that was, so he came up with this idea millions of years. And then Darwin took it, and uh, uh, years later when he was out traveling, and he ends up at uh, the Galapagos Islands, and he sees the finch, and these finches are different because their beaks are different, and he says, wow, this is evolution. And so he is going with what Lyle says in millions of years, and over millions of years then, and he comes up with the whole idea of evolutionary change over time, literally Molecules demand. That's you know what what they're talking about there. But the biblical model fits really the evidence best. And if you've ever seen Mount St. Helens, the what happened in 1980, Mount St. Helens in Washington, the huge volcano blew its top, flooded, uh, 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 created a new lake, Spirit Lake. There's trees in there that are now that are now uh, petrified. Uh, you can see where. Layers of sediment have been deposited instantaneously during this eruption. And so if you took that, a picture of the layers of those sediments, and you took it into a modern-day geology class, you ask them, how many years did that take? <laughs> they oh, well, let me count the layers. That, right there, that took, that took a 1,000 years. And they said, no, it actually took three and a half hours. That was the flood. You know, that was the, the whole side of the mountain blew off and melted. 
uh, melted the snow there and it washed down in, into the, into the uh, lake there, created a new lake. And all the times happening is that you get materials being deposited. And so it, it looked like, you know, by, by the way, it's hot because of the, the lava and so it solidifies and it turns into sedimentary rock. That's the process. And so when you look at the biblical model, best fits the physical evidence. I think it was the Grand Canyon, and the guy was talking about the layers, and he said, proof of Noah's flood. That's right. Okay, so you brought up Grand Canyon, and the, the people tell you, oh, it's a millions and millions of years of the creek just eroding away, eroding away. Well, there's a major problem with that, though, is that for that to actually happen, the creek would have to flow uphill. Because at the beginning of the creek, of, of the Colorado River, it's at a lower point than at the crest in the middle. So somehow that water's got to flow uphill to start that carving process. So obviously it, isn't, it doesn't work that way, right? But a massive flood, all that water running off the continental shelf could carve that out. So again, that's why the, the biblical model best fits the physical evidence. And what else? Christ himself confirmed the scriptures, and then we have prophecies to... Um, to demonstrate the veracity, which is why, you know, people out there, anybody who makes a prophecy and they put a date on it, you know. Jesus is coming back. Right? Yeah. Jesus, or, or how about this, the world is going to end in 10 years because of global warming. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? I think somebody by name Greta, I don't remember, but, you know, that one. So, I'm going through several 10 years. 10 years, every, add 10 every time, right? But you don't make a prophecy with a specific timeline on it uh, because when it doesn't become true, then they recognize you're a fraud. And what did they do with prophets in the Old Testament? Stoned them. Who were liars, essentially. They were stoned. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if they did that today, I don't think we'd have people coming out with all these yeah. crazy prophecies. Right? <laughs> right. So, conclusion. The Bible uh, claims to be and is the Word of God. The Bible has all the marks of inspiration of God. Yet, sadly, some people have never even read a single page, right? So then, what we covered? We covered in, chat, in part one, or lesson one, the uh, session one, the revelation of God. In session two, the Bible, general information, structures, and themes. And then today we covered um, the Bible's claim of inspiration. And the question is, how will you respond? Do we respond as if we believe it's true? That's key. So, spend time in the Bible, and uh, you don't have to be a you don't have to be a scholar to understand it. Psalm one nineteen one thirty says, "The unfolding of your word gives light; it gives understanding to the simple." God's word will help us. So, any questions on anything we covered? Okay. So next week we will do uh, lesson two. I'm sorry. Yeah, lesson. No. Yeah, lesson. Lesson two, and it will only spend one week in it. So that means you only have one week to memorize that particular passage, all right? So.